As the song we just sang stated, we're sorry, Lord, for the thing that we've made it when it's all about you, Jesus. Amen? For the last several weeks, we've been talking about this idea of vision. And I think it's really important that we understand what vision is and what vision isn't. And for a moment, I just want to ask you if you'll close your eyes. I promise I'm not going to run down there and sneak up behind anybody. Just close your eyes for a minute. And I want you to imagine what heaven will be like. I want you to think in your conception, in your idea, what is heaven going to be like? And do you picture all of us floating around on clouds with angel wings strumming our harps. All of us together with all of our friends and our family. And I'll ask you to open your eyes now, and this may be a very rude start to the beginning of our service, the beginning of the the message today, but I want to let you know in all honesty that if that's your conception of heaven, it's completely false. It is absolutely, in every way, shape, and form, false. See, culture begins to dictate to us what heaven is and what heaven isn't. And we walk around with these funny ideas and we share funny stories and funny pictures Maybe we don't think they're funny, but I think God is probably discouraged in part at the things that we talk about, our conception of heaven, when he's given us his word, to let us know what heaven is and what heaven isn't. So if you have a Bible with you, I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Revelation, because the book of Revelation does an incredible job of painting a picture of what the ever after is going to look like. You're going to have to have some nimble fingers to keep up with me here. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, we read, I looked and saw a great multitude from every nation and tribe and people and tongue standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And so what scripture does for us is it paints this picture of heaven, of eternity, of not being a bunch of people that look exactly like me or you. It's a bunch of people, people who we might not even think are going to be there from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Those are the people of God, the bride. And in Revelation chapter 12, it tells us, Beginning in about verse 9, so the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, 
the one who deceives the whole world, he's thrown down to the earth, and I heard a loud voice in heaven say, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been thrown down. They, our brothers and sisters, they conquered him. They conquered Satan. They conquered that great serpent, the accuser, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they did not love their lives to the point of death. So we've got this picture in Revelation 7 and Revelation 12, and then I'll ask you to turn to Revelation 19, and we're talking about vision. And in Revelation 19, it's talking about the marriage banquet. Verse 6, it says, Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude. I like to picture Niagara Falls, what it would be like to be standing at the bottom of Niagara Falls, not cascading waters like if you go to a spa and you listen to a little fountain that they have running in the background, but Niagara Falls and the deafening sound of those waters pouring down like the rumbling of loud thunder. That's this vast multitude praising God, singing, Hallelujah, because our Lord God... The Almighty reigns. Let us be glad. Rejoice and give Him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has prepared herself. See, it wasn't done for her. She prepared herself. And in doing so, she was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. And then it tells us what that fine linen was that she was wearing. It represents the righteous acts of the saints. And then the last one that we'll look at, this idea of vision, of this future state of eternity of heaven. Dr. Paul Smith came and he visited us several months ago and he preached a sermon on the temple. And the last part of his sermon, he came to Revelation 21. And in verse 22, it says, in this idea of the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth. And the new Jerusalem, in 22, it says, I did not see a temple in the new Jerusalem, in that city, because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are the city's temple. And if you fast forward down to verse 25, it says, its gates will never be closed in that new Jerusalem because it will never be night there. And they, the people of God, the kings of the earth, they will bring their glory and the honor of the nations into that temple that is God Almighty and the Lamb. And if you're sitting there wondering, what's the pastor talking about? I'm talking about vision And see, vision isn't left up to us to come up with our own idea of what the future holds, but we do it anyway. And we take God's word and we cross out parts that we really don't find that we really have the time or the desire to really understand what it has to say. 
And so we fill in blanks and we start sharing pictures on social media of people sitting on clouds with harps, floating with angels' wings, and talking about to our friends when they lose loved ones that had no relationship with Jesus Christ. And we say, oh, they're, I'm sure they're going to be in heaven. I'm sure that, I'm sure that they're looking down on us from above. Where does it say that in God's word? And we've just taken the liberty to throw out God's word and to fill in blanks to make somebody feel better that they don't really have to come to grips with the fact that they come into this world as these little kids just mentioned, come into the world in sin. And that repentance and reconciliation with God is required. Vision. We've been talking about that for several weeks, and the vision of Poetry Baptist Church is a spirit-led church revealing Christ through unity and worship. And that idea of worship, if we're really going to have a solid vision of who we are as the church, as the body of Christ, then we have to understand what worship is. And I don't think that we do. And so today, that's what we're talking about, is from Scripture... Not our idea, but from Scripture, what does God's Word have to say about worship? See, because our idea, I think that it amounts to singing. Hey, let's sing some songs together when we gather together on Sunday. That's worship. And you could say, Pastor, I don't think that's really true. And I would give you what uh, in the corporate world today we say is an effective pushback, an effective challenge is that we would say, no, that's not our idea of worship, but see, it's in our language. It's in the culture of the church. You see, as a church, if you go on to all of the church uh, headhunting websites about churchstaffing.com and all of these different websites where people submit their resumes or churches are looking for a pastor or they're looking for someone to handle the music, and what do we call that person? What do we call the person that we would hire to lead us in music? We call them our worship leader because, see, what we're communicating is, is that worship is limited to this. It's limited to song. It's limited to what we do on Sunday mornings here in this specific place. And then when we go outside these walls, because that person who's our worship leader isn't with us, then we don't worship anymore. Not until next week when we go back. And then John will stand up here and John will say, everyone, please stand and let's worship together. And I'm not saying that song can't be worship, but see what we do is we reverse engineer it and then we limit ourselves to the fact that worship is just what we do when we lift our voices together. And some of us do and some of us don't. Some people would say, well, that's not really my gift. And nowhere in scripture do I see where it says it's okay to just keep your mouth closed because that's not your gift. When I was at Dallas Theological Seminary, I had the privilege of having Dr. Ron Allen as one of my professors. And I had Dr. Ron Allen in a study of the Psalms. And Dr. Ron Allen, on the very first day, he said, I don't think you people, seminary students, and by extension, people in the church, I don't think you understand what praise is. 
And I was sitting there as a very new Christian saying, well, I know I don't know what praise is inside my head and in my heart. I don't know what praise is. That's why I'm here. And Dr. Allen said that you think praise is simply something like singing in the shower, singing in your car, that that's praise. And it's not. And Dr. Allen said, and I'm going to trust Dr. Allen because of all the research that I've done since, and the scholar that he is, and his hand in helping to write and edit the new King James Version translation of the Bible, very gifted Hebrew scholar, and he said all throughout Scripture, praise is always two things. It's always public, write it down, it's always public, and it's always vocal. And so when you decide that you're going to reinvent what it means to praise God, and you're doing it by yourself, and you say, I don't really have to go and join my church family on Sunday in worship in that sanctuary and lift up our voices together. I can praise God on my own, and you can't. You can sing, but you can't praise because praise is always public, and it's always vocal. And that second part of it, that idea that it's always vocal, how often do you sit there and say, I don't really have to engage, it's not my thing. Singing's not my deal, it's not my wheelhouse, it's not my giftedness. So we want to look into scripture and allow scripture to determine our vision. It's in our culture, and our culture's wrong. It's in our language, it's in our church language, it's in the way that we communicate. We have a worship leader, we have a worship team, and even in our churches we have worship nights. I want you to look up there on the screen if you're listening to this on audio or maybe watching it on video. It's a very popular or famous quote by a man named John Piper. And I love John Piper. And I think that this is true, but you have to understand what it is that John Piper is saying. And I don't think that we do. John Piper says in this quote, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. And if you're sitting there and you're not really getting any traction in your brain and you're saying, huh, that's okay because I was there the first time I heard it. What John Piper is saying is that what we do when we go out on missions to evangelize and share the word of God to the ends of the earth is because there are people out there who aren't worshiping God. They're worshiping idols. They're worshiping self. They're worshiping other things. And what he's saying is not that worship in and of itself doesn't exist. What he's saying is that the worship of the one true God, the right kind of worship, doesn't exist. So we engage in missions. And I think the problem that can happen when we read this is that what we do in our minds, in our cultural language, is that we say missions is one thing and worship is something else. See, because John Piper just said missions exist because worship doesn't. And when we make that delineation, when we make that break in our minds, then missions ceases to be Worship. And that's not true. There's a day when missions will end, but worship will never end. 
And so the point for today that I really want to impress upon you, that I really want to communicate well, is that worship is what we do in unity to reveal Christ as members of the body. Not just on a whim, not on our own gut feeling, but as led by the Spirit. As led by the Spirit and corrected and informed by God's Word, His revelation. And all of it is to glorify God. All of it is to glorify God. That's the point. That's where we're going today. And so I want to break this down into three parts. I want to talk about what it is that worship reveals. And ultimately, worship reveals what we love. And it falls into two categories. As I said just a moment ago, you can worship the one true God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinitarian God of Scripture that begins all the way at Genesis 1 and ends at the last verse of Revelation. That's who God is. And worship reveals that we either love that God or we love a category of other. And in that category of other is anything other than loving God. It's what we love and it's either God or it's other. And what we really love, and I'm going to start here, is with the idea of nostalgia. We love nostalgia, don't we? Don't we? Nobody's with me? You guys are all good? Don't we love nostalgia? We love to, we love to think back and to kind of reminisce. Maybe we think about our favorite memory from childhood. Oh gosh. And I know when I get together with my siblings and I've got, there's four of us total and one of us will say, you know, do you remember when, remember when we lived in upstate New York? We lived in that little town, Watertown, New York. And my brother will say, do you remember when? And then my sister Kathleen will say, I don't really remember it that way. And my sister Deborah will say, yeah, I don't really remember it that way either. And I'm the youngest. And I'll say, well, I don't even remember that at all. But we love nostalgia. I've shared this many times with our congregation. There's a little watercolor painting right out here as you're walking out the doors on the right. A little watercolor painting. And it's of the side, if you were to go out this way, about a 100 yards, and look at the side of our building. Back when it was built in the early 1900s, we're still in that same structure, this portion right here. Built in the early 1900s. And someone painted that watercolor, and I took a picture of that, and I posted it on Facebook a few months, maybe six weeks after I had become pastor, and I put it on our Facebook page. And I had posted many things before about our service times, about Christmas coming up, about... Uh, a bereavement service, a service where people could come and we could just sort of grieve over lost loved ones, that people could come together and we could worship as a community. And there was hardly any response to any of that at all. But when I put up that little picture of that watercolor, our Facebook page just blew up. It blew up with people saying, oh gosh, I remember that painting. I remember that painting, and boy, I remember back in the days when, and then dot, 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 fill in the blank. The nostalgia just poured in. It was literally hundreds of responses, far more than anything we've ever gotten. 
And people saying, oh gosh, I remember around Christmas time when, when the old pastor used to hand out bags of warm chestnuts. And I'm like, chestnuts were wiped out in the United States years ago. There was a plight on chestnut trees and you can't even find them anymore. Chestnuts aren't even a thing. And so the person who is chiming in is going back, I don't know, 50 years to when somebody handed out chestnuts and that's their recollection. That's nostalgia and the power of it. And people would say, oh gosh, yeah, I remember that. I remember that nostalgia. And see, Israel did the exact same thing in Exodus chapter 16. Nostalgia, and we see how perverted nostalgia becomes. The nation of Israel has been delivered from 400 plus years of slavery. And we're not talking about just the kind of slavery in the New Testament talks about, of being an indentured servant where life was good, And you had it really okay. It wasn't the kind of slavery that we think of in the United States when these ship owners would go to Africa and that they would steal and kidnap these Africans and they would put them on ships. And if they survived the trek back to the new world, back to America, and many didn't, that they were living in their own filth all throughout the trek in the journey that they became slaves of plantation owners. That's the kind of slavery that Israel was in for 400 years. Then they're delivered by God. They're led by Moses. And they go out into the desert. And they're sitting there, and nostalgia starts to come in. Ah, Mike, do you remember? Do you remember? Not when we were sitting with this fool Moses who's leading us and we've got nothing to drink and we've got nothing to eat. Do you remember? Oh, back in the good old days. Do you remember, Mike, when we were sitting around pots of meat that were just overflowing and we could eat to our heart's content? We could eat whatever we wanted. Nostalgia. Let's not, let's not remember the part about how our slave masters whipped us. Let's not remember the part about how when Moses said, let my people go so that we can go to Sinai and worship the one true God. Let's, let's not remember that they said, hey, your brick quota is going to stay the same, except we're not going to give you all the ingredients to make them. And when you don't produce what it is that's required, we're going to beat you down. Nostalgia. And the reason why we love nostalgia is because we love autonomy. We love nostalgia because we love autonomy. In the book of Kings, you don't have to turn there, but I was doing a little research this week, and there's a king in 2 Kings 22 named Josiah. And what we find out in 2 Kings 22 is that Josiah, one of the, one of the priests come to him, and it's been about 60 years since the reign of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was a good king. 60 years goes by, and the temple has fallen into complete disarray and disrepair. The book of the law is tucked away in some corner, and this priest comes forward and he shows the book to Hezekiah. It's not really a book, it was a scroll. And he starts to read from the scroll the word of God, probably the Pentateuch. And he's reading it to him, and Josiah is overcome. 
that we would have such disregard for God Almighty that we allow the temple to fall into disarray and disrepair, that his word would be completely neglected, that maybe somebody found it underneath, I don't know, an old music instrument. Maybe there's a a tambourine and someone finds a scroll and it's covered with dust and they shake it off and this priest starts to read it. And Josiah is broken and he rips his clothes and he repents and he weeps to the Lord. We love nostalgia because we love autonomy. In 2 Kings 18, Hezekiah, just before Josiah, about 60 years, he goes through this spiritual renewal. And you can read in verse 4 of 2 Kings 18 about how he had torn down all of the high places of all the Asherah poles, all of the different things that people worshipped. And it turns out that the bronze snake, all the way back to the time of Moses, that the people of Israel had been worshipping this bronze snake for 800 years, burning incense to it. Worship reveals the fact that we love nostalgia. We love autonomy. We love our idols. We love them. And we love them. And you say, well, that's great, Pastor. You're talking about an old bronze serpent that I've never seen. You're talking about pots of meat in Egypt that has nothing to do with me. Well, maybe this has something to do with you. What about your career? Do you love your career? Maybe as a student? Maybe as a professional? Do you love that more than you love God? Do you love power? Do you love prestige? Do you love recognition? Do you love success? Do you love safety? Do you love security? See, because we went back and we said, worship reveals what we love, and it's either God or it's something else. If someone was were to take your cell phone and they were to look at how much time you spent in all of the different apps and how much time you spent on your phone or your mobile device, and then were to, they were to compare that to how much time you spent in God's Word this week, would there be a discrepancy? Would there be a little bit of a difference? So what is it that you really love? Worship doesn't just reveal what we love. It requires something. See, we said as we began that there's this vision from God's word about who the church is. And we said that not everybody's going to be in heaven We can sit there and at funerals and I dread the day that I have to do a funeral for someone that I know is not a believer in Jesus Christ because I will not stand there and say, oh, by golly, we know that good old Sam, he's up there looking down on us. He's with Jesus now. I'm not going to lie. And I'm not saying that I'm the ultimate judge, but if I don't know, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to sit here and make people feel good at a funeral so that they can leave and think, you know what, I'm okay. Because I knew Sam, and Sam didn't have any kind of relationship with Jesus. And if the pastor said that Sam's okay, then i got to be okay too. And then I just lied to people. And as a pastor and a teacher of God's word, I'm accountable. So whether or not I offend you at a funeral, I really don't care. 
That's not your day, Pastor. You're right. Because everything that we do is for the purpose of glorifying God. It's not to make you feel better in the moment. When you lose a loved one who lived their entire life as a rebel to God Almighty, their creator. I'm not going to lie and make you feel better. So what does worship require? Authentic worship requires recognition and repentance. It requires recognition and repentance. And our focal text for today, I'm going to ask you if you'll turn to Psalm 95. While you're turning there, I'm going to go ahead and read it for us. Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord, shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout triumphantly to him in song. For the Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods. The depths of the earth are in his hand, and the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his. He made it. His hands form the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for he is God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Psalm 95, verses 1 through 8. Recognition. And what we see in terms of recognition in Psalm 95 is the recognition that God is Lord. That that word Lord that we translate in English is Yahweh. It's the word that God said when Moses appeared to him or he appeared to Moses in the burning bush and Moses came before him and God said, take off your sandals This is holy ground. And God told him what his name would be known by for all generations to come. And it was Yahweh. I am. Not I'm going to be. Not I'm fixing to be. Not I was. Not a has been. But I am. That's God. Always eternal. Unchanging. Recognition of God as a rock. And not just a rock, meaning that he's unchanging. God isn't fickle. He doesn't just sit there and one day, you know what, that form of worship was acceptable, but that was yesterday. And you're not on your A game. We have a member of our congregation who was involved in Scientology years ago. And one of the things about Scientology that people will find out is that the criteria are always changing. It's the same thing in Mormonism. Is that whoever the recent prophet is that whatever it is that they write down actually trumps whatever came before it. So while a Mormon will come to your door and they'll say, you know what? Uh, hey, do you believe in Jesus? And you say, yes. And they say, I believe in Jesus too. So we're brothers. That would be like me holding up this clicker and my wife holding up a watermelon and say, honey, uh, I believe in watermelons too. Look, I got one right here in my hand. It's not a watermelon. Just because you call that thing that you believe in Jesus doesn't make it so. Mormons say that he is a created being. We don't believe that. So this idea that he is a rock, he's not fickle, he's unchanging. He is our salvation. He is our savior. That we can come into his presence and that's king language. That's the idea that we as the people of the kingdom, that we can't just walk and stroll in whenever we feel like it. It's the idea that God is the eternal king. 
that he is God. He's a king above all gods. And you say, oh, right there in the Bible, it says that there are other gods. Yes, there are other gods. Little g. Because the other gods are whatever it is that you choose to worship. It doesn't say that they're legitimate gods. It doesn't say that Asherah and Baal and all of the gods that Israel worshipped and the gods that we worship today, it doesn't mean that they're legit. It means that they're gods with a little g because we spend our time worshipping them, our career, our kids, our lives. Recognition and repentance. Recognition is required, and it means that repentance is required. See, we can't just sit there and say, you know what, I accept the fact that I'm not God, and therefore everything's okay. In the book of James, James writes and says that even the demons believe and they tremble. They shake like leaves in the presence of God. But it doesn't say anywhere that they've repented from their rebellion. And so why is it that we think as Christians, as human beings, that you know what, we don't really need to preach the full gospel. We don't really have to offend people's delicate sensibilities and preach at church in this congregation on Sundays that there's actually something that needs to change in your life. I read a blog by a guy who was an atheist years ago, and he said, what I hate about Christians is that they said that God accepts you just the way that you are. Now change. And he's exactly right. What God does is he accepts you exactly where you are right now. But you can't stay there. You can't stay exactly where you are. We're being conformed into the image of Christ. That he who began a good work in you will see it through to... To what? To staying still? To completion. It means that transformation and change has to happen. And therefore, we have to repent. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. So what does worship result in? Worship results in, and there's a lot of things. Worship results in unity, something that we spoke on in our mission statement, in our vision statement, I'm sorry. It results in gathering together. See, we can't just do it by ourselves. It results in song. See, that because I may be by myself and I may sing, and that's okay, but that's not praise, right? So it results in song, but it also results in gathering together to praise God. And it results in bowing down. I don't know if you saw that in Psalm 95. Come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord. So it's vocal. It goes even back a little bit. It says, let us. So it means community. It means gathering together. And we go even further back than that. And the first word in my translation says, come. And what we've done, if we look at the CSB and it deleted out that word, oh, if you're going to say, oh, what does it exclaim? You're excited, right? Oh, my favorite show's on TV. Oh, my favorite team just scored a touchdown. Oh, did you see that? And what we do in scripture when we cut out the O that's in the original Hebrew language, what we actually communicate in Scripture is that joy isn't really part of it. Worship isn't really about joy. 
and joy isn't really allowed in worship. So what we do, since we're a good Baptist congregation, is that when we sing, what we do is we stand nice and rigid, and we kind of mumble. And when we see somebody that's new in our fellowship and they raise their hand up, we say, oh, honey, look at that guy. He must be one of those Pentecostal types. He's getting all charismatic on us. And what we do is we reveal in ourselves that we don't even understand what charismatic is. Do you know what the word charisma comes from? Kara, grace. Charisma means the demonstration of grace. It's the gift of God. It's the free gift of God, his kara. And because of the free gift of God, when it flows unto us and we're filled with joy, what do we do? We stand with our hands in our pockets. And we seal our lips with super glue. And when somebody standing in our congregation starts to move a little bit back and forth, oh, that guy Vincent, he's a nut. He's getting a little worked up over there. That hand went up. Oh, that guy, he's the one that every Sunday after the pastor preaches, he gets up there and he gets down on a knee. How can you possibly have something to say to God every Sunday? He's probably just making it up. He probably just wants everybody to notice him. There isn't anything that he really needs to say. See, it results in unity. It results in song. It results in praise. It results in bowing down. Come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly. Oh, come to the rock of our salvation. Does that get you excited? No. Does it? He's the rock of your salvation. He's not going anywhere. When you put your trust and your faith in him, he's never going to betray you. Ever. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Are you thankful for anything? Yesterday I was driving with my wife and our little ones. And I said, honey, have you ever just been thankful for the fact that your car works? And she said, you know, I've never really thought of it. I said, my car years ago used to die on me all the time. And I'm driving by ways because I have no sense of direction whatsoever. And it says, there's one mile to Chipotle. One mile to Chipotle, and I'm excited about going to Chipotle, so I'm thankful for that, but I'm also thankful for the car that I'm in, that we don't have to tote our kids down a busy highway, that we have to wait for a tow truck, that our car actually works. Are you thankful? I don't know, are we? Let us shout triumphantly to him in song. For the Lord is a great God. He's a great king above all gods. And then in verse 6, it says, Come, oh come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. When's the last time you did that? When's the last time? And I don't just mean I was raised Catholic and we bowed and kneeled and we got up and down and we did all the religious stuff. But when's the last time that deep in your heart, you bow down before God and you just said, Lord, I'm just so, I'm just so thankful. I'm just so thankful. When's the last time? See, maturity in Christ in Ephesians 4 that it talks about isn't about getting beyond a point at which we're thankful. 
It doesn't mean that we get to a place where we cease to be filled with joy. And I think sometimes that when people come into our fellowship, and if they watch us to see whether or not we're revealing Christ, maybe some of those people are saying, I'm not really convinced. I'm not really convinced by your physical behaviors. I'm not, you know, you put on kind of a good show, but I don't really see you. You, You're really going out there on a limb. See, we're the people of his pastor, the sheep under his care. We know what joy is. We get excited when a guy takes a little piece of pigskin and it crosses a, a little white chalk line on the ground and we lose our minds, right? Oh, man. When we see a guy take a round thing that's orange and stick it inside of a, a bigger cylinder with a net on it, we lose our minds. You say, well, sports aren't really my thing. Sports aren't really my thing. Well, what is it that you get really excited about? I wonder if you asked your kids, if you gave them an option between taking away their Bible for a month and their cell phone, you find out what they're really, really excited about, what really brings them joy. Are we joyful? Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before Yahweh, our maker, for he is our God. See, it results in unity. It results in worship. Worship results in gathering together to praise God. It's this very physical and visceral thing. And it results in joy. This is the last week where I'm going through the different parts of our vision statement. And I pray, it really has been my prayer, that as members of this congregation, maybe as a visitor this won't resonate with you, but members of this congregation, that when you close your eyes and you think about and you read that on the bulletin, you see it on our website, a spirit-led church, revealing Christ through unity in worship. That you really understand what that means. And when that grabs a hold of your heart and that we as a body collectively capture that vision and we live it out, that when people walk into our midst, that their lives will be changed for the glory of God. Let's pray together. God, we love you. And I pray that our vision truly is your vision. That the things that we pursue are for your, for your glory. God, I pray that we truly understand what worship is. That we wouldn't think of it as just some singing that we do from time to time on Sundays when we're here. But it's everything that we do together as the body of Christ in unity, led by the Spirit for your glory. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know what the Holy Spirit was doing in and through you today during the message, but this is a time of invitation and response. Maybe it's 
just to come up here and to do as the psalmist said, to bow down and just to say thank you.